0: Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short personal stories where we explore the idea that truth can be stranger than fiction. This week's episode, entitled Three Street Shot Shorties, brings you three little stories from the streets of New York. First up, I unwittingly give a family from Kansas a hair raising New York experience they won't soon forget. Next, is a short and sweet tale of a bad parking job by a BMW owner and its inevitable result. Finally, a sad tale of tragedy and its midnight memorialization on the sidewalks near Washington Square. Three Street Shot Shorties I lived in New York for 25 years. It's become my home, and I know the people storefronts and street corners of my little section of the city like the back of my hand. That's the beauty of a neighborhood. It becomes yours, and you share that collective feeling with your neighbors. But as many writers have observed throughout the years, everyone wants a piece of this city. And those writers, artists, and observers like myself, who are down on street level, seeing things go by, we're all living New York every day. As E.B. White said in his famous Here is New York... There are roughly three New York's the city of the people who are born here and take it for granted as natural and inevitable, the New York of the commuter, the city that is devoured by a locust each day and spat out each night, third, the person who was born somewhere else and came here to New York in quest of something. He goes on to say it's the settlers who give the city its passion. I guess White and I share that passion for the city and its streets falling in love with the small details that make this place. But everything is always changing, and I can start to feel possessive, protective even, trying to hold on to the ever-elusive old New York. But maybe that's what ties all the different type of people together in this city. We all have our opinions of what New York really means. I like to think of the following as snapshots in story form, little still-life photos taken on the streets of New York City that may all be pieced together to get at some of its larger character. Street shot shorty number one, sidewalk dining. My sarcastic response to the suggestion that we all eat at a table outside the restaurant? Nah, bad idea. We'll get harassed by some homeless guy, and there'll probably be a drive-by shooting. In spite of this advice, my wife and her guests prevail. I love New York, but one of the bad things about the city is that everybody wants to come here. And if you're the only person they know in New York, they want you to show them around, or worse yet, offer them a place to stay. Every so often I make the mistake of agreeing to a tour, like now, for example. In this case, it's a family of five from Kansas. They make all the usual wrong moves, stand in a group completely blocking the sidewalk, walk four abreast, and gawk up at all the tallest skyscrapers. My M.O., is to give them pamphlets about all the usual places they want to go, and I don't. Empire State, Statue of Liberty, Times Square. Offer some advice on how to use the subway, and then send them on their merry way. I do, however, agree to treat them to lunch at a nice place. But because they've seen The Cupping Room, a restaurant on the corner of Broome and West Broadway, in some movie, that's where they want to eat. They also want to sit at a table outside. This is the point at which I cautioned about being harassed by the homeless and the possibility of a drive-by shooting. Be aware that I'm on first-name terms with most of the homeless people in the neighborhood. I pretty much give something whenever asked, in spite of my friends' complaints that they just use the money for drugs or drink. Or worse yet, they make so much money they drive a fancy car. Yeah, right, dream on. So we sit outside, and before anyone takes our order, Chris who lives in a homeless shelter nearby, comes up and aggressively holds his begging cup in my face, calling me by name. I respond, Chris, I'm happy to give, but you know, not while I'm eating. Chris totally loses it, screams profanities at me, and then a couple of busboys and a waiter push him away. He must be off his meds, I suggest. Our visitors are wide-eyed with horror and perplexed by how he knew my name. Before I can respond, a block uptown A teenage kid has just robbed a store and is booking down the sidewalk toward us, running amazingly fast. Just to our left is a black SUV with two plainclothes policemen inside. They observe the situation, jump out of their car, draw their guns, and yell, freeze, motherfucker. I yell to my group, get down, which they all do immediately. The kid does freeze, holds up his hands, and kneels down as instructed. Then they cuff him and load him into their vehicle. We all decide to forego lunch, and the Kansas family decides right on the spot to leave town early. I'm guessing because they don't want to spend another minute in such a horrifyingly lawless place. They will most probably never return. My prediction about why we shouldn't eat outside was based on pure sarcasm and not on my experience in New York. In the 20 years since this happened, I have been harassed while eating by only one homeless person and have never again seen a thief apprehended at gunpoint. I'm sure our guests are still spreading the good word about New York City to everyone they meet out on the prairie. Street shot, shorty number two, Beamer. I do believe that certain types of people buy certain types of vehicles. For example, an old VW bus is going to be driven by a very different person than a Hummer or a Harley. Actually, I hate road hogging Hummers more than almost any other brand of vehicles. So much so that, in fact, a few years back, when they were at the apex of their popularity, I made an exact duplicate of a day orange NYC parking ticket, except on the backside, I suggested in Helvetica bold that the Hummer's owner was compensating for the size of his organ by owning such a big monster vehicle. The first time I put one of my tickets on the windshield of a new silver Hummer and then had coffee at a nearby cafe to watch, the big, beefy owner's reaction was so fierce, his hands on his hips glaring in all directions, that I felt real fear when he looked my way. That was the first and last Hummer ticket I gave out. There is, however, another vehicle that tops my list of entitled owners, the sports-sized BMW. I'd been cut off by, had parking spaces stolen from behind by, almost been sideswiped by, and been otherwise abused by many of these little Beamers. There's even a joke about their behavior. What's the difference between a BMW and a porcupine? With a porcupine, The pricks are on the outside. One day, directly across Bleecker Street from my art studio, I witnessed a classic Beamer move. There was an extra-large backhoe, called an excavator, from a nearby construction project, parked there, taking up four spaces. The equipment driver had extended the arm of his machine and then rested the teeth of the bucket on the paving, creating an arc of sorts. My guess was that he did this so as not to stress the pneumatics of the arm While it was parked, it was just enough room for a car to park under the arm. And sure enough, along came a shiny new black BMW and parked there. Off went the entitled owner, never looking back. As the day wore on, I noticed from my studio that the arm was losing pressure and slowly settling down on the roof of the car. Once it began to crush the Beamer in slow motion, I got my camera and was squatting in the street shooting the crushed car when the owner approached and demanded to know why I was photographing his car, which he hadn't yet looked at. I stepped back and unrolled my arm and hand toward his vehicle, just as Cyrano de Bergerac might have done. When he looked over, his contorted face was priceless. It's always sweet to watch someone get their just desserts. Then he asked me in a much nicer tone the whereabouts of the backhoe driver. I simply turned, walked away, and never looked back. It turned out to be a great photograph. Street shot shorty number three, fire. I jump off my bike because I've just run over about a hundred red and white long-stemmed roses, arranged in neat rows on the sidewalk. It's a weeknight, and I'm bicycling after midnight on the deserted sidewalks of Washington Place, which runs from Broadway, dead-ending into the side of Washington Square Park in New York. I'm on the sidewalk because the street is cobblestones and makes for a rough ride and there's no one else around anyway. I bend down and pick up one of the roses that my tires have knocked aside. The stem is wrapped in a label which bears the name Yetta Berger. Another says Rose Basino and a third, Essie Bernstein. A couple of years before this evening, I was commissioned to do a series of bronze panels in Union Square, eight blocks north of here, commemorating the women's labor movement that started in New York City. The first women's labor union was the International Ladies' Garment Workers. One of the panels that I created depicted the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which happened on March 25, 1911, when 146 garment workers, mostly young Jewish and Italian female immigrant seamstresses, were trapped on the ninth floor of a loft building that caught fire. The fire moved fast and furiously through the fabric-strewn floors. Just as with the World Trade Center almost a century later, they were forced to leap from the windows to escape the searing flames, falling a hundred feet to their deaths on the sidewalk below. Even though I'd studied the history of the fire, I'd never actually visited the building where it happened, which still stands next to me on Washington Place where I am now. On the side of the building, lit by the streetlights, I read the sad saga of the fire on a historical plaque. The horrors of that day Actually, led to New York City passing some of the nation's first fire safety laws. As I pick up rose after rose and read the attached names, I am moved to tears and then some anger. Just placing these flowers as a remembrance and then leaving them lay to become next day's trash seems remarkably insensitive. In the morning, I call the organization that sponsors the yearly memorialization and make this point. The woman I'm speaking with. Agrees completely with me and thanks me for my suggestion that the flowers be attended to in some other way than just leaving them lie on the sidewalk. She assures me that this practice will change. A year later, late in the evening of March 25th, I returned to the same spot, and there lay the 146 roses again, all neatly labeled and arranged in rows, waiting to become tomorrow's trash. C'est la vie, c'est la morte. (musique) (musique) Compulsive Storyteller is written by me, Greg Lefebvre, and co-produced with Peter Kakoma, who has also made our theme song. If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller for free on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you would leave a review, that would be fantastic. Follow the show on Instagram at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you don't like this one, the next one will be another story.